Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Dalvo Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friends Giselle Donnelly, I'm also at AEI, and Yuria Joja with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington University. On our podcast, we talk about the challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along a line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Bill Crystal, the editor-at-large of The Bulwark and Washington's premier public intellectual and impresario. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Uh, Bill, you visited Germany recently on your arrival. You wrote a piece with our mutual friend Jeff Gedman on uh, the promise of the Titan vendor and sort of taking stock of the progress that you had seen in Germany since the beginning of Russia's war against Ukraine. Since the piece came out, we've seen the Omni shambles last week over the delivery or non-delivery of the Leopard tanks. Um, and, and, and you sort of you know, wrote, wrote a little follow-up this morning where you still claim that the glass is basically uh, half full. Uh, but there are some minor qualifications to your original sense of optimism and and sort of satisfaction at, at the progress seen in Germany. So can you share with us your latest thinking on, on where things stand in Germany and and and, and with Germany's role in, in as, as as a sort of European leader in countering creeping authoritarianism and and imperialism from Russia? Sure. Well, good to be with all of you. Yeah, I was in Germany, and I mean, not having been there in, I guess, several, six, seven years, maybe, and not following it nearly as closely as, as you all do, or as Jeff does, I actually, I, I thought maybe that gave me a little perspective, and I was struck, I mean, just how different the conversation was from anything I'd experienced in my adult lifetime, and in many, many conferences and meetings from 1989 on, there are not so many in those recent years, and so there is a way in which there's a forest and trees kind of thing, and I, I do did think when I got back, and I guess I still think that if you look at the forest, it's a pretty big transformation. And if you look at the trees, there's, you know, Schultz's, Chancellor Schultz is very slow and, um, and uh, it's, a, it's frustrating and, and, and serious. And some of the, the failures of Germany to deliver weaponry and to be as forward leaning as they could be with regard to Ukraine. But I think they will end up delivering the leopards and we probably played some role in not pushing them hard enough and not maybe make it easy for them at the end by sending a dozen Abrams tanks that wouldn't have been the end of the world, you know? So there's some, has there's been hesitancy as you all well know, and have been talking about on this podcast every week, you know, on the parts of many people, not everyone, Central and Eastern Europeans have been terrific. You know, one thing that's interesting, it struck me at the time, and this also came out of a conversation I had with our mutual friend, Frank Fukuyama, who I think was on this podcast recently. Uh, today, I did a conversation with him. You know, I think I was a little misled because most, many of the people we met with in Germany were younger people, super young, but like, like you guys, Julia and Dalibor, you know, and um, next generation down from me and Giselle, I guess. And, um, and they were, they were forward leading. They were pretty clear, very clear eyed in their understanding of Russia itself, of the mistakes Germany had made with respect to Russia, to Putin's Russia. And then also the broader implications, not just, I mean, Ukraine matters a ton, but but for the whole region and for Europe and really for the world, for liberal democracy. And I was so struck by that, that I probably slightly foolishly thought, well, maybe that's the general view. And I think that's a view of some people from more people in the younger generation, I would think, uh, not so much maybe 65-year-old chancellors who've, you know, been around in politics a long time and have gotten along well with the Russians and 
for reasons maybe you know both psychological and ideological and maybe mercenary have talked themselves into a kind of a different view of things so i still am pretty optimistic that the Zeitenwende, the change of, I don't know what the right translation is, change of orientation, uh, turning point is real there and elsewhere. Uh, but uh, there are lots of zigs and zags along the way. So as a follow-up on that, do you think that based on the conversations you've had um, in Berlin, is it rather, uh, like you're suggesting, a generational pro problem? Or is it a political problem too because there's been obviously a lot of speculation on that um you and i and giselle were at a breakfast with a leading green younger politician um a couple of weeks ago that we hosted here in um, washington and she was certainly on the same track um that you seem to um tell from the meeting um, of an understanding and support of Ukraine and the larger region. And then there's been all this um, heat around the SPD, the party of Chancellor Schultz, um, that still has ties to former um, Chancellor Schroeder. Um, he's not been kicked out of the party yet. And of course, there's a lot of, you know, old time business ties that lead back to Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 and, and all of that. So, Do you think it's from from the impressions that you've had from Berlin? Is it more a generational issue, or is it also a political one? No, both. And look, the, the there are deep business ties and political ties with Russia, and then a deep kind of sense of the of uh, they don't want to make a permanent enemy of Russia, and, and they don't want to be in the middle of a war, and all kinds of things. So an awful lot of stuff has come together to make Germany much more hesitant than it should be, I think, and then well, certainly many of the countries to its east between Germany and Russia. So that's unfortunate. I, I don't, I, I can't judge, I just don't know German politics well enough to, to know, I mean, how strong the the old guard is, you know, it's, those things are hard to judge when you're in the middle of a changing situation. You know, it's easy to, probably too easy, a little bit too easy, I probably fell into this trap to say, well, obviously the momentum is going in one direction and therefore obviously it's going to overcome the obstacles because sometimes the obstacles stop the momentum and things reverse ultimately or stall out. And in the case of Ukraine, Russia, stalling out is bad because if nothing happens for the next six, nine, 12 months, then you end up in a frozen war and we don't do enough, the Germans don't do enough to, to help the Ukrainians. That's a bad outcome in my view. So, so stalling out is not good enough. So I probably overestimated a little bit how much the kind of momentum of change overwhelms the forces of the status quo. And uh, I still am inclined to think that just the power of events and and, and uh, will continue, and, and also the neighboring countries. It'd be one thing if the rest of Europe were hesitant, and, but Germany has put such a premium on being in sync with Europe. I mean, you're a European nation, and suddenly, and, and they're getting beat up pretty badly by a lot of the other European countries, including even the governments. And I'm also struck, my German's not for, not good at all, but, you know, these days with Google Translate and Twitter, you can sort of make out what's going on in foreign nations, press, and the media. And Schultz just seems to be getting beaten up by everyone in Germany. I mean, the, even the kind of respectable old guard columnists and the staid, you know, newspapers and stuff. So that also I take to be a bit of a good sign. It's such a consensual sort of society that if everyone's against the chancellor on something, my assumption is he eventually comes around. I can't judge how much damage it does, you know, the delay and the hesitation and the sort of half steps as opposed to full steps. 
Schultz is still in line with what's coming out of the French government. So, um, you know, uh, there are two things, two related things that make me a little bit more worried about the, the longer term. Uh, the first being this sort of sense that, that I get that the center of gravity in Europe is is shifting very much to the east. You know, dynamic young leaders who are, you know, brutally clear-eyed about the danger from Russia but also a forward-looking generation of leaders uh, rather than a backward-looking generation of leaders. And the thing that one hears periodically or you know, some senior German official will say, basically, I can't wait to get back to normal. So I'd just be interested in whether you got any vibes vis-a-vis those trends, either you know, sort of the younger people to whom you're speaking were ready for that sort of thoroughgoing change or you know do they still believe that oh, russia is european will always be european and therefore we have to somehow accommodate them i mean again i think it's sort of in between i mean i think people i think if you just said in a room even of slightly stolid you know older spd and cdu people we, we, we just can get back to normal in a year or two. I think they would think, I'm not so sure about that. This is a, a, the largest land war on the European continent since 1945. The kind of brutality we've seen from Putin and, you know, really from the Russian soldiers, unfortunately, as well. And, and the support of it, apparently hard to judge from at least parts of Russian society itself, or certainly on Russian media. Um, I, I don't think they're, I think they know that they're not going to go back to normal. And I don't think they are, incidentally. I don't think Nord Stream is going to get revived. I don't think they're going to, going to be having summits with Putin next year. You know, in that respect, I think they sort of understand things have changed. But I guess uh, one German politician said uh, to, to us that, if you say the new normal, we need to embrace the new normal. They also get nervous because that seems like too much of a leap in the dark. So, you know, I guess this is how it is. If one was living through, you know, 1946 to 1950 or something here, there would have been a lot of both of these things going on. And, and you know, one always forgets Truman was busy drawing down troops in Europe until 1950, right, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, you know this stuff better than I do. And, you know, try to cut the defense budget and stuff. And then the Korean War happened. So... I think Putin, I mean, I hate to say it because it's been so horrible and brutal, but I mean, Putin has made it hard for people to talk themselves into, you know, well, we can just kind of get beyond this. I mean, I, th- I think this is a thought experiment to do. Can, we, can one imagine a kind of Biden went to see, met with Putin, didn't go to see him, but met with him uh, in Europe, I guess it was, right? Uh, in spring of tw- three, four months after he became president. I can't remember, April, May, something like that, 2021. 20, mm. June 2021. Was it June? Yeah. June. Yeah. And, um, you know, and that was in the tradition of every American president since 2000, trying to have kind of a reset with Putin. I mean, to Biden's credit, he kept the expectations lower than, you know, uh, Secretary Clinton had with Obama or Bush did in, the, in, the, in the, that first meeting. But Trump was his own world in terms of Putin. But, but even so, I, I just I guess I, I can't imagine Putin being at an international conference with President Biden or Chancellor Schultz or Macron, whatever Macron's private conversations and Macron wants to fantasize that he's got a special relationship with Putin. I don't know. Can one, you know, and can one imagine Putin visiting any of these countries? So I, I guess, um, or our leaders visiting him. So I guess I feel like Putin's the brutality and the impressiveness of the Ukrainian resistance and, and fighting back. And fighting back on behalf of liberal values, on behalf of Europe, I mean, that's important. If Ukraine were 
let's say, equally justified in resisting Russian aggression. But it was a different kind of Ukrainian government, and they were doing it entirely on grounds of defending Ukraine, which God knows they're entitled to do, but but not so much on grounds also that this is the front line of Europe, and we want to be, we are European, we want to be European, and we are liberal, and we're proud of it. I think then you can imagine people at some point saying, oh, well, this is a territorial fight between you know different parts of the former Soviet Union, and we have our sympathies, but we can't let it change the whole nature of the 21st century in Europe. But I, I think it's, I think we are beyond that, partly because of Putin and partly because of Zelensky and mostly because of just the objective facts of the situation. I mean, Frank Fukuyama said, uh, and he has a piece on, on this in the American Prospect, I think it's today, that uh, he was in Japan and was struck by how much uh, their thinking has been changed by the last year, mostly vis-a-vis China, but sort of thinking about, oh my God, if Putin can do this in Europe, maybe we all kind of took for granted China wouldn't really do anything to Taiwan, you know, a lot of threatening, a lot of bluster, but surely they're not going to put everything at risk. But now they're being much more serious about defense, uh, real defense, not just kind of symbolic, you know, statements. And so I don't know if it's having an effect that far away. Um, maybe it's a little harder to get back to a, an old normal. And I think, you know, if Germany, I mean, if Germany tried to, it would be a real European crisis and a crisis in the alliance, because it's pretty clear the Balts and Poland and a lot of other countries are not in Sweden and Finland, for that matter, are not interested in getting back to some, even trying to get back to some old normal. I think it's pretty clear that we are in a sort of different world and it's having repercussions, as you said. It's not a coincidence that we are talking much more about Taiwan security in the aftermath of the of the invasion. But I want to go back to, to something you alluded to earlier, which is this question of how much damage German hesitation, food dragging does. And I imagine two possible answers to that question. One is, one has to do with the war itself. So, you know, every day the Ukrainians don't have the lepers or this or that kind of equipment. There are Ukrainians dying as a result of that. And and the war takes longer and it's harder for Ukrainians to take initiative. And and I mean, there is a real sort of human, human cost associated to that. And the second answer is that I think, you know, whatever the direction of Germany's travel, I think there has been real sort of reputational damage done to to to, to Germany and 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 damage to the trust that that people have put in in Germany as a sort of benign, benevolent leader of of of, of European nations, which will have repercussions down the line for you know people's dreams about European strategic autonomy and and so on and so forth. And I wonder, and and this is where my question comes in uh, is what sort of opportunities this situation can create for the United States to sort of act constructively and build coalitions that will, A, make it you know easy and safe for the Germans to do the right thing, and B, also help organize others in the case of German inaction to, to sort of move ahead through various coalitions of the willing. And have we seen enough initiative from, from the Biden administration in that respect? Yeah, so that's a couple couple of very interesting questions. I mean, clearly there's been a human cost in Ukraine by uh, because of the slowness and providing adequate weaponry, and that slowness is most is German, but also us really. And I, I think some of the most important weaponry is actually stuff we could have provided, not uh, not even the leopards. So um, that's bad. Now, hopefully it's not. I mean, it's bad, but hopefully it's not bad enough to change the direction of the war. And hopefully, it unfortunately, means more deaths, more suffering, but maybe a little longer uh, fight, but not fundamentally, we will do enough to help the Ukrainians win. And they still seem to have 
you know, be in a pretty good strategic position and, and so forth. So, so that in that respect, I think the damage is terrible and in the from a human point of view, but hopefully not not decisive. The the question of U.S. leadership is so interesting. I mean, in a weird way, Germany, uh, Schultz highlighted the indispensability of the U.S. in his uh, when he was trying to find an excuse not to provide the lappers. By saying, "Well, we're not doing anything until the U.S. provides." The Abrams tanks. Well, what about? I thought the whole point is that of greater European solidarity, European defense cooperation. They're not going to just wait on the U.S. They're not just waiting for Joe Biden to signal to you know give them a yellow or green light till they step ahead. And uh, suddenly that all disappeared. It was entire, in fact, if I were the U.K. or some other countries, and they, I would be very angry at all. So they are because it's like, hey, wait a second. I thought the whole point was if we go, you go, and it's nice if the U.S. goes too, but we don't all have to totally be dependent on the U.S. in this way. So Schultz, in a funny way, uh, damaged Germany with the other European nations, but also reminded everyone of what is, in fact, an underlying truth, you know, which is the U.S. is so central to this alliance for all of the European, gain, you know, build-ups and to the degree they've built up their defenses, certainly for all their economic gains over the last decades. Uh, that hasn't really changed that much, I've got to say. And, and I think that's a good reminder, honestly, and a good reminder to us of how important uh, we are. I wish Biden had just said, okay, fine, we're sending a dozen Abramses. Now are you happy? In a way, by being, I can understand why they didn't. I mean, he's probably annoyed at being sort of, you know, uh, blackmailed isn't the word, but what's the word, you know, kind of just taken advantage of in this way or being, you know, having demands made of, of him. When, but, um, but he probably should have put, put Schultz on the spot uh, uh, on this. So, yeah, I think the reputational damage is real, though that was already happening, wasn't it? I mean, I'm struck. You mentioned, I think, coalitions of the willing. I mean, I think from, I'm not an expert on this, and I saw you guys, actually, several of you, all of you know more than I do about this. My sense is, if you step back and said this was all going to happen, Russia's going to invade, and there'll be a surprising amount of Western unity and, and European unity and U.S.-European unity and opposing it, I think we all would have said, okay, well, that's NATO, and, and NATO would, there'd be a ton of meetings in Brussels, and they'd be agreeing on sending this set of you know, material and, and this diplomatic statement. It's been sort of coalitions of the willing almost from the beginning. I mean, it's under a NATO umbrella often, and NATO's not, they're not acting adverse to, adversely to NATO in, in some sense. But the degree to which um, different nations seem to have gotten together and worked out bilateral, multilateral arrangements to share things, to ship, and of course they have to geographically, to ship weapons through one place to another, to have training centers on each other's soil, to swap, in a sense, weapons, to make them make it easier to get stuff to Ukraine. I mean, it's been sort of impressive and I think sort of healthy. What has the sense that an awful lot of chancelleries you know, scattered around Europe that have been sort of doing nothing and vaguely participating in some training exercises with us and, you know, worrying about, I don't know, the rules of, uh, you know, some, some EU bureaucratic rules about, you know, common uh, labeling of products or something. Uh, suddenly they're like, it's real, real politics and real foreign policy. And they're, they seem to have stepped up to the occasion pretty well. My sense is that there's a lot of ingenuity and, uh, and flexibility and, and actually, uh, uh, initiative being exerted by all these nations. But that makes, I mean, Germany and France, they're of course, so they're big, but a lot of their centrality came from a certain sense that, well, they're the engines of the EU and sort of NATO, France, not so much NATO, and, you know, that you can't really do anything without them. I, I do think in that respect, leaving aside the kind of reputational damage, like bad op-eds, in the real world, I do think there'll be less deference. I mean, I'd be curious what you guys think of this 
to Germany. Maybe there wasn't that much before, but I think there was more worrying about getting out ahead of Germany, the, the big kid on the block. And suddenly it's like the Poles are going to get together with the Czechs and with, you know, Finland and, and the Balts. I'm making this up, but I would feel, you know, and, and decide, why don't we just do A, B or C? And it won't just be in the context of Ukraine. They could do the same in other areas. So in a way, though NATO's proved its worth, I would say, and uh, is not, as didn't Macron say a few years ago, it's, what is it? Brain dead. dead. Brain dead. Brain dead. I don't think that turned out to be true. You do have more coalitions of the willing and more of a, but in a good way, in the sense that it's not weakening the the Western alliance. These are sort of sub-alliances, which I think you could argue together are doing more than if you had to get everything signed off on in some giant conference room uh, in Brussels. Well, one hopes that actually this will this will be the new normal. That uh, right. That's what I'm. That's what I'm thinking. Could it be? I mean, you know. Well, look. I mean, even if the war is concluded successfully, there'll still be a threat. There'll be a need to contain and deter uh, against Russian uh, aggression. So, I mean, it it will <laughs> be like 1946, 1947, just because the war in Ukraine may come to a conclusion you know that's there's no way that that can be really the the end of the story but i i do i do like to switch over to the american view of this because i I had the perfect segue for that actually (laughs) if (laughs) if i ruined it i apologize um but so two things you have given the administration pretty high marks and I think rightfully so. They've certainly exceeded my expectations. But even now, there's still this overhang of self-deterrence that you, you you just wonder why we just don't put all the cards on the table. And there, there are good military reasons to do so, so that the Ukrainians can make the most of this coming <clears throat> campaign season. They need to have all the pieces in place to be able to, you know, make the most of them. But but again, so there's that, and then uh, maybe after that we could talk about um, Kevin McCarthy's caucus uh, and and uh, you know what they're capable of doing, what they'll threaten to do, and so on and so forth. But um, like I say, you've you've uh, been fairly on point about giving the administration credit for what it has done, while still hoping that they would do more faster. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, very much so. And then there are these moments when you think, oh, they're really coming through. And then other moments where you hear about something, it's not gotten the much publicity, which might have been pretty good. And then you uh, then look at, well, even the last week and you think, really, they have a summit in Rammstein and they can't even organize that. You yeah, know, where, where's the staff on that? I, mean, <laughs> I know you don't have summits unless they're going to be successes. And this was not uh, total, entirely unforeseen. And I don't know. So, yeah, no, I'm, I'm frustrated about that. I I'm a little fresh. I don't know. Biden has not done much to make the case about this to the American people. A lot of us have pointed this out, and some some people have complained quite a bit about that. Where's the Oval Office speech? Is again a huge moment in foreign policy and in the world. And he says it's a huge moment, democracy and autocracy. But he says it in some speech that's you know at 3 p.m. in the afternoon that gets you know maybe reported on page 23 of newspapers if there are still newspapers. But whoever it gets not even you know not even trending on Twitter. You know. Right. The ultimate, the ultimate failure of, 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 of PR these days. But part of me also thinks, I don't know, maybe it doesn't make much difference. You know what I mean? I mean, the, again, presidential speeches aren't what they once were. Maybe to his credit, he sort of doesn't want to make it too partisan. And so he wants to let 
let it be just the country is responding well, not not Biden personally, you know. But again, I mean, so and Biden personally has a complicated history on foreign policy. You know, Afghanistan, which was pretty disastrous in my opinion and pretty shameful, really, was also Biden and very much in accord with his own instincts, which has been to, and it still is. And and, and, the, and the fact that we have no U.S. troops uh, engaged is very much, I mean, it's fine. I don't think anyone's really calling for them. Ukraine's not calling for them, but Biden stressed that very early on. I and mean, that's, he's been able to be very aggressive because this hasn't been a situation that called for the U.S. to actually use force itself. Um, and, you know, one doesn't know, therefore, how, what would happen if we had that kind of situation. But having said all that, I mean, given Biden's history and, uh, um, preoccupation with other issues and so forth. Yeah, I think on the whole, it's been a little better than I could have expected. But again, we, we need to have a coming to grips here of what's uh, what the future looks like. I think I'll just get to the two parties for a second, and then you can, we can talk more about that. I mean, the Democratic Party, I would say, uh, contrary to what I think some of what people expected two, three years ago, they were progressives around the ascendancy. You know, they're, they've got all the momentum. There are a few moderates hanging on for dear life. It doesn't feel that way now to me. There are some aggressive progressives, so to speak. 30 people tried to send a letter calling for rethinking. You, you, 30 young, uh, thirty House uh, progressives, yeah. uh, Democrats sent a letter, which Pelosi was so you know stuffed out and I think they even retracted the letter, right? That was before the election. Now Pelosi's also an old guard person, but I don't know, there are a lot of younger Democratic members, the Spanbergers and Slotkins of the world who were very good on uh, alliances and forward-leaning American foreign policy and defense spending, for that matter. So I feel better about the Democratic Party than I expected to be, uh, things to be three, four years ago. Um, now, again, we'll see what happens. If Biden runs again, if he doesn't run again, who runs, what their what positions do they take? We'll have a bit of an x-ray, certainly if Biden did, doesn't run. With Biden running, it gets sort of covered over. But if Biden ends up not running, uh, you'll have a real x-ray just in the primary process to where the Democrats are. And very much the same with the Republicans. I mean, I think people are looking at the House Republicans, and that's going to be its own craziness. And they will not be able to really fundamentally, I think, damage the, our support for the war. Now, if things go badly and we're in a frozen war by a year from now, there could be an erosion of support across the board. And they would certainly, that would, you'd see that even more in the House Republican caucus. But I still think if Biden hangs tough, there's no real chance to affect real practical policy vis-a-vis Ukraine, but we will have a Republican presidential primary in a year. And even leaving Trump aside for a minute, you know, what positions the ambitious Republicans who were sort of Trumpy, but not quite like Trump, and some of them have decent foreign policy backgrounds, and some don't, where are DeSantis and Youngkin and all these other characters on Ukraine, Pence, I mean, Pompeo, I guess, and I mean, many other people are going are gonna to run probably. So, I mean, that will be a bit of, and how does that debate play out? Do people get rewarded for being anti-Ukraine? I mean, it makes a what? huge difference. I think this is true in the late 40s as well. Uh, the Republicans are not going to be great, certainly from my point of view, on foreign policy. It makes a huge difference if they're 70-30 in the right direction, 50-50, 30-70. I mean, just as a practical matter, you can you can have a good foreign policy where the other party is not fully on board. Well, your own party isn't entirely on board. As long as you have some of the other party, you know, a decent chunk of the other party. If you really get one party that's just against helping Ukraine by late 24, the presidential nominee of such a party, that's a whole different story. Then that's very dicey. And if that party wins or gains seats in the Senate or something, 
then you're really in in trouble. For now, I feel it's okay with McConnell in the Senate and with enough the, the committee chairs in the House being pretty reasonable, McCall and Rogers. But I, uh, it doesn't mean that everything will be great a year and a half from now. Just before I finally shut up, is there also the prospect of a reverse dynamic where, uh, you know, a big success on Ukraine's part in the battlefield sort of, uh, you know, not drives a stake in in the the Trumpy wing, but uh, you know, makes them lose clout. Yeah, very much so. And I think Trump personally losing some steam helps on that. Yeah, the way I've been thinking about it, I mean, there's Trumpism has been on the ascendancy, God knows, in the Republican Party for what, a long time now? It's hard to believe, almost seven, eight years. Uh, but there still is some Reaganism, if you want to think of it in this way. And could Reaganism get a shot in the arm? Could there be a next generation almost of Reaganism? Could politicians look up and decide, Oof, maybe it's not so great to sound like Marjorie Taylor Greene on this. Maybe I'll just be a little more conventionally kind of, you know, I mean, you criticize, take some cheap shots at Biden or, or legitimate shots at Biden, but, you know, just go back to being kind of uh, sounding a little more like Reagan and Bush and McCain and all that. Um, I think that's quite possible. Yeah, this is where, I mean, one of many, many areas where the result of in Ukraine is so important for so important for Ukraine, so important for Russia, so important for Europe. I think important for our own politics, though. You know, so it's really in a very sort of somewhat unusual uh, situation in that respect. I wonder if I could tie this to the earlier conversation we had about Germany and the possible damage that German hesitation has done to you know, various things that we, we care about. There has been this refrain on the right for some while now that uh, Europeans are not paying their fair share, that the alliance is, you know, fleecing us and what are we doing there and look at those wealthy democracies, they can defend themselves. Uh, and in a way, uh, having that point sort of reinforced by that sort of visible German hesitation and sort of unwillingness to step up, uh what worries me is, is that that can sort of exacerbate that tendency on the on the right uh, and, and can sort of entrench it as, as one of the sort of defining tenets of, of a foreign policy outlook going into the 2024 uh, election. Although it's not really based in reality. I mean, the Europeans have stepped up. It's not just about sort of Germany and the military aid, but you know financial assistance, the sort of amount of money European Union and member states are giving, lending to Ukraine is roughly at par with what the Americans are doing. So it's it's just not the case that Europeans are doing nothing and, and the US is sort of bearing all the burden yet. Uh, I mean, it, it, I, th I, th I think that sort of talking point risks being entrenched to the point to which it sort of becomes the baseline of 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 the of the sort of republican discussion uh how can we push back i mean i think i think it's important that the europe a lot of european nations are doing a lot and some of them are proportionally doing more than we are and that's worth publicizing and it's worth probably doing more someone some groups here in the us maybe all of us should do more to make some of these uh, good europeans if i can use that term younger European leaders who really have been terrific, uh, make them more famous here, honestly. You know, I mean, Germany's always going to get a little more press than Estonia or Finland, I suppose, but I feel like people could, could be a little bit, and people are, I think, do know, I mean, not that people know perhaps about what they're doing or seen clips of those speeches and so forth, but 
to the degree that they have. I think that's been helpful. I, I think it's a little harder to peddle the law. And, and Ukraine itself, of course, is hugely important from Zelensky. A little harder to say those pathetic, decadent, you know, Europeans, they're on, I mean, to quote our friend Bob Kagan, you know, they're on they're on uh, Venus and we're on Mars. I don't know. They're like it's pretty Martian there in Ukraine right now. And they're doing a pretty amazing job fighting. And the other Europeans don't seem to be mostly putting their head in the sand. So, so I think a lot of that probably be worth it. Again, the administration hasn't done much to make that better known. We don't have a situation like we did 70, 80 years ago where there are a huge network of other institutions that try to publicize this stuff, you know, this is like the early Cold War. Maybe that's worth really thinking about more, more, more systematically. Um, so I think that's one point I made in Germany. Of course, they, it was, look, of course, one question you always get is, could Trump come back? So yes, he could. And Trumpism hasn't gone away. And so it's something you all, and they would say, well, you know, how can we really commit when we don't know where the U.S. is going to be in two years? And they think the one answer to that is, um, you know what? The U.S. is more likely to be in a bad place in two years if you don't commit now. I mean, it's, uh, just for the reason you said, Dalbor, the, the, the hesitation and the uh, strengthens, the, makes it easier for people in the U.S. to say, what are we doing spending all this money for? Schultz won't even allow other countries to send troops. They've made money to send tanks. They've sold to these other countries, you know, to, to Ukraine. So I think there's a bit of a cash twenty two, whatever the right word is, you know, a bit of a spiral here both ways. I mean, if Europe is more forward leaning, it's easier for us to be, and vice versa. And if they if they hesitate even more, it strengthens the ranks of the hesitators back here. So before we wrap up a couple of things, um, I think you're entirely right about, you know, the younger Europeans in our attempts to give them a stronger voice. What stood out to me from, when was it last week, Davos, everyone in Europe was talking about Davos, it's the ultimate thing, and Ukraine House and all of that. The strongest statement that came mm -hmm. out of it was, as per her style, one sentence from the Prime Minister of, Sanna, uh, of um, Finland, Sanna Marin, who said, This war could have been avoided if Ukraine would have been in NATO. Bam. You know, nobody said it before. She manages to say these things in one sentence, and she and others like her don't get enough credit for that um, because smaller countries and all of that. So I think you're entirely right, and this is my little attempt to advertise it more. I want to, um, before we wrap up, I want to ask you another thing sort of in the transatlantic segue. Basically, um, asking you sort of alluded to that a little bit, mentioned that um, what the Germans and the Europeans that you met a couple of weeks ago in Berlin asked you about um, hill dynamics on Ukraine um, beyond Trump. And from, I guess, putting myself in my European shoes, what I look at um, here, focusing on the Hill and particularly the Republican Party, which gets transatlantically a lot of heat for, you know, reduced and unclear support beyond the midterm elections for Ukraine, is the numbers in the polls, right? Um, that Republicans, unlike Democrats, something that sounds atypical for me as a Central Eastern European um, in, you know, the whole tradition of, of Reaganism that tends to be still huge there, uh, is that it seems that slowly 
opinion polls um, on the Republican side are siding less and less in support of Ukraine, particularly if there's adjacent costs to that. And of course, um, you know better than us that this is also based on what Republican leaders are saying, how they are talking about it. So can you lighten our worries? Can you tell us a little bit about how what the Europeans have been asking about this and how you see this unfolding or a couple of scenarios of how you see this unfolding coming into end of 2023 into 2024. Um, You know, we've now had just a couple of impressions uh, after the midterm elections. It's all still pretty blurry on the Republican side in Ukraine. Um, What do you see in terms of trends? How will leaders potentially position themselves? The Europeans are worried. And you look, I was pretty honest and said, you're right to be worried. I mean, it'd be foolish to say you have nothing to worry about in the US. Trump was president for four years. He uh, certainly talked down NATO. He seems to have made some efforts to even get out of it. He was talked out of getting out of it or by various aides of his um, who were from an old school Republican world, though, or uh, a military diplomatic world which one can't be confident will be back in if Trump's president again, or even if, you know, DeSantis or others are president again. So that, I think, is perfectly legitimate worry, and it's foolish to tell the Europeans they have nothing to to fear. So you can't blame Europeans for being worried about the situation in the Republican Party and to some degree in the, in the Democratic Party. The uh, I mean, if you step back, yeah, the Republicans have, from my point of view, gone south in the last seven, eight years, very much so. And um, the Democrats have got a little better, you know, Barack Obama got the nomination because he was the one guy who was against. I mean, if you look at Obama's campaign and at the first year or two of his administration, was rhetoric at least, and then what he did in the second term, I mean, Biden was his vice president. and But Biden doesn't sound much like Obama. Now, there's their underlying strains that they have in common and, 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 you know, Obama, that sort of Obamaism could come back. But the Cairo speech, if you read that today, the uh, the red line and the not following through on that Afghanistan was sort of, a, I, I hope, the last gasp of that aspect of the Democratic Party. And and again, it's just one of those ironies of history that people will write about. I'm sure that, you know, Afghanistan was 20, you know, sort of close to 2021 was shaped by the Afghanistan foreign policy. The, the main thing that happened, I think, was the Afghanistan decision, wouldn't you say? And, and then in 2022, months since 2022, uh, Putin invades, invades Ukraine. And um, so maybe, I, again, one doesn't know how permanent the reversal is and people aren't going to reconsider decisions they made in the past. So they're not going to really repudiate those kinds of things, the Democrats. But again, if you look back six, seven years, the movement of the Democratic Party, I'd say, has on the whole been in a pretty good direction, we, partly because they had reacted against Trump. I mean, I've watched this in real time and I was sort of amused at times, all these Democrats deciding, we love NATO, we love the alliances, Trump's so irresponsible to say all this stuff. I don't know, I'm kind of old enough to remember when they didn't love it that much, and they were not thrilled with NATO enlargement, and they were like, couldn't we just get our troops out of there? And it's but kind of a provocation to Russia, but whatever. I mean, it's, if, if their reaction to, and I say this seriously in a way, if they, if, they, if they learn something from seeing up close what America first really looks like, and that it's not good for liberalism in the broad sense of liberal democracy. That's a healthy 
lesson. I mean, I wish we didn't have to pay this price to 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 learn it as a country or as a, or even the Democratic Party or liberals to learn it. But I do think they've learned something that you can't just be you know isolationist abroad and sort of think that liberalism is going to do great at home, but we don't care at all about liberty elsewhere. I mean, during the Obama administration, I'll maybe I'll close with this since I, I think you guys probably have to uh, close this out. I mean, I remember in the Obama I guess when he announced the Afghan surge, but combined it with the withdrawal, you know, and so this would be like 20, 2009, 2010, I guess. He said, uh, nation building in Afghanistan, we, we just can't afford to do that. Nation building has to begin here at home. And that was after the 2008 financial crisis. And I remember saying to one of the people I knew in the Obama White House, I, this is a terrible thing for the president to say. This is not going to lead. I understand what you're trying to do, and you're going to spend a lot of money on domestic policy, which is okay. But this is going to play into the hands of what I then called the Buchananites in the Republican Party, which then became, in a way, the Trumpites. When you say nation building begins at home, that's just one step from what are we wasting all this money abroad on foreign aid? And incidentally, why do we need to have these troops over there and stuff? And I actually, unfortunately, I think I was, you know, in this sense, I was right about that. I don't know that Obama caused any of that, to be fair, in terms of Trumpism and that had its own dynamic. But in practice, I do think liberals see much more than they did a decade ago, that a kind of uh, kind of isolationism, a kind of, quote, realism in foreign policy, a refusal to see that we have something at stake elsewhere in the world when when liberal Democrats either get persecuted at home or, or and oppressed at home, or certainly when they get invaded by neighbors. I think they people do liberals do see now that that's that withdrawing from the world is not going to be a happy moment for liberalism. It's going to strengthen a kind of Trumpism and America firstism that's going to be illiberal. And so it was a cliche of the Cold War years that you know freedom is indivisible and all. It was always overstated and honored someone in the breach at times. But I do think liberals have changed. I mean, without ever thinking much about it, some of them sort of their instincts at least are to be more concerned about liberal democracy abroad than they certainly were, I think, 20 or 30 years ago. Now, again, it's one thing to be concerned when you're spending money and sending aid and, you know, doing good things to sanctions even. It's another thing to be concerned when it comes to really tough decisions and we just don't know, you know, kind of what would happen if we had to, you know, run real risks of, of ourselves being in a conflict and so forth. But so it's a very mixed bag, I think, the state of American politics. I mean, it's very worrisome. Let's not kid ourselves. Trump being president for four years did a lot of damage. And the fact that he's still sort of leader of one of the two major parties is not a great thing. But um, but there are a lot of cross-cutting currents. And so at here as abroad, which makes this a very interesting and somewhat challenging time in international, not just in international politics, but in domestic politics here and elsewhere. So I, I very much, Germany is sort of in question, but the U.S. is in question as well. Well, I very much agree that the, the, the real work for people like us is on the political right. And if we can do our part by amplifying the voices of good Europeans, we'd be more than happy to do so. So if Sana Marin is listening to this podcast, she should rest assured that she always has a platform. Let's uh, invite her to the World Forum. <laughs> she, should be on this pod- she should be on this podcast. And I would even get... That it would get better ratings than having me or Frank be on there. You, know? you shouldn't be underselling yourself. That's you know? right. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. 
from Dalbor Rohaj, Giselle Donnelly, and Yulia Zosa. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod, written as one word. And don't forget to sign up for the Eastern Front's newsletter through the link included in the show notes for more content from the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.